Today's reading is from Acts 13, 13 through 43. This is the word of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No. But behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers... This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, 
Be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. This is the word of the Lord. So good to be with you on Easter, friends. Um, Most of you I know, some of you I don't. I haven't met you, I'm Matthew, and it's a joy to serve as lead pastor of this church and a joy every week to listen as God addresses us through his word. Um, I do not know what you came on Easter Sunday hoping to experience or receive, uh, but there is one thing in this church we are convinced we need more than anything else, and that is the word of the living and reigning Jesus Christ. And so my prayer, as many of you are eager for a sermon on Easter Sunday, is that in my words, you would hear his words. Because it is his words that you need. And my words are only sufficient to the degree they point to him. So Lord, we ask you for that this morning. Um, You know that many of us come in with lots of desires, lots of emotions, lots of hopes, fears, and longings. And so our prayer as we turn our attention to your preached word is that as the Greek said to Philip, we wish to see Jesus. Heavenly Father, today, we wish to see Jesus. So give us a tender heart that understands. Give us open ears that hear Give us eyes that can see more than mere words on a page. But the glory of the Christ, they reveal and make known. Lord, do that in English. Do that in Spanish this morning through those serving in translation. Bless them, we pray. It's good to be gathered with your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Some of you already know this, but my grandmother on my dad's side turned 101 last month. Quite an accomplishment, Uh, and is actually in remarkable health considering her age. My my parents recently took our boys, three young boys, for a visit to her assisted living facility outside Barbersville, West Virginia. She's lived in that area for nearly her whole life, and they returned with iPods full of pictures, and movies of the experience, including those awkward, wonderful moments where they're taking turns sitting on grandma's lap. And and watching those videos brought back memories of conversations that I used to have with her when I was growing up, including this. Whenever you ask her a question, in many cases, she would almost always say, yes. She would say yes, because for most of her life, she's been completely deaf in one ear and partially deaf in the other. And though she can read lips, she doesn't often understand what people are saying to her. 
Now, quick, quick disclaimer, qualifying remark here. Her disability has not made her reluctant over the course of her life to serve people or to engage in conversation. She's a remarkably generous and unselfish woman. And she participates in conversation even though she can't hear 90% of what you're saying as best she can, usually with a smile. And if she's not sure what you've said or what she's supposed to say, she simply says with her West Virginia accent, long drawl, yes. And as a young boy, I decided that this default setting was a golden opportunity. Because this is how 13-year-old boys think, right? So, so my siblings and I would take turns asking questions like, Grandma, can I have a million dollars? And then we would clap for joy when inevitably she said, Yeah. And to this day, and in my mind, my dad's mom will always reside in my head as the woman who says, yes. Friends, the God who created us and redeems us is a God who delights to say, yes. But unlike my grandma, it's, it's not because he doesn't know what else to say. He says yes because he is a faithful God. Second Corinthians 1.19 For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, was not yes and no. But in him, it is always Yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. I don't don't think I need to tell you that, that we live in a world that's full of shattered hopes and unmet expectations, and unfulfilled dreams, and and unfulfilled longings for all sorts of things that are good and true and beautiful, right? People make, people all around us, all around you, they make commitments they don't keep. They they have intentions that they cannot fulfill. And, And that unfaithfulness hurts, doesn't it? Doesn't take long to experience that. And and perhaps you, having experienced that, friend, you think of God like that. Sure, he says some nice things, but but then you look at your life. You look at your suffering. Maybe there was a time when, when you thought God was worthy of your trust. But now you're not so sure. You you can relate to the travelers on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, 21, who who after speaking of Jesus following his crucifixion said, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Maybe you review your life this year and what you see is you, you just go from year to year, season to season, you just see a long train 
of had hoped. And in that kind of world, where other people don't keep their promises, we don't keep our own promises, Jesus' resurrection from the dead says something for us. It it proclaims something. It, It proves and reveals something. Listen, God keeps his promises. He he does all he says he will do. That's what the resurrection says. That's what it shouts to you and me. And and the entire Bible, the entire Old Testament before Jesus arrived on the scene is filled with divine promises. Promises to restore, to to heal, to grant freedom and joy and and life where our, our rebellion against the authority and law of God brought nothing but corruption and sin and death. And to every one of those promises, every promise God has ever made, the resurrection of Christ says yes. It says yes. Why? Here's the main point of Acts 13. Because God's promised salvation is fulfilled through Jesus' resurrection for all who believe. That's Paul's point. God's promised salvation is fulfilled. He says yes through Jesus' resurrection for all who believe. Friend, God's faithfulness, please hear this. God's faithfulness isn't just an abstract idea. Or, or something that, you know, we sing about or the Bible talks about or Christians, you know, believe, but, it, but it's not really a thing. It's just a concept. No, no. God's faithfulness compels him to do everything he says he will do. To, to accomplish mighty acts of salvation on our behalf, culminating in raising Jesus from the dead. And that, friends, is the good news of Easter. If you want to know what the resurrection means and and why why Christians are so excited about the resurrection and grateful for the resurrection, the simplest answer I can give is this. Because to all the saving promises of God, the resurrection says yes. It says yes. And in Acts 13, in this passage, Paul makes at least three points about the salvation that we need and God has been faithful to provide. So let's work through these this morning. First, salvation is a gift from a faithful God. It's a gift from a faithful God. Paul's account of God's redemptive work begins, look at verse 15, with an invitation from the rulers in the Jewish synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, which is in modern Turkey, roughly. And they say to him, brothers... If you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. What what an invitation. (laughs) If you have a word of encouragement for the people. And, And the sermon Paul preaches in response, think about this. It was a word of encouragement back then, and it's still a word of encouragement today. Why is that the case? Because Paul's words are ultimately Jesus' words. They they represent no less than the entire book of Acts. Acts 1.1, what Jesus continued to do and teach through his disciples. 
and is still doing and teaching today. And in verses 17 through 22, Paul summarizes roughly a thousand years of Israel's history. He's moving quickly. Beginning, notice, with God's sovereign choice to draw their fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, to himself. That that was a story that, that the Jews listening to him had heard and knew from childhood. But, but notice something about the way Paul tells it. He doesn't say, Abraham did this, or Moses did that, and, and then Samuel and David did their things. No. Who, who's the subject of all the verbs? God is. It, it's the Lord. He chose their fathers. God, God work in our lives always begins with his gracious initiative. He he made the people great during centuries of harsh slavery in Egypt. His favor prevails over all the schemes of wicked men. And then he led them out with what? An uplifted arm. What's the point? That deliverance from trouble doesn't come from our own wisdom or understanding. It comes from the Lord. And it was all an act of grace. Look at verse 18. He what? Put up with them in the wilderness. How would you love God to say that about you and the people you're part of? Well, what did God do? Well, he put up with you. It was an act of grace. He patiently bore with his people. Despite their persistent refusal to trust him and and obey him, mercy is the theme of our song. But it's not, hear this, it's not because God is soft or unjust or or just turns a blind eye to wrongdoing and sin. No, after all, he destroyed, verse 19, seven nations in the land of Canaan on account of their wickedness. So why did he bear with Israel? Why why did he bring Israel into the promised land? He he did it. He, He carried Israel because he promised to bring her into his place. And God always keeps his promises. That's why he did it. But notice in verse 20, the timing of of this gift of salvation, it's not so important, friends. It's not governed by human wisdom and understanding. All this took about 450 years. I don't like to wait two weeks. (laughs) Do you? I mean, do you think the wait made sense to Israel after, I don't know, like 300 years of slavery in Egypt? No. Brothers and sisters, God's ways haven't changed. When, When something makes no sense to you at the time. Please do not conclude God is missing in action. Humbly remember that that his ways are higher than your ways. His thoughts are greater than your thoughts. The whole story of Israel's salvation from beginning to end was God's work. He gave them judges. He gave them prophets like Samuel. He gave and removed a king named Saul. And he raised up David, the son of Jesse, in his place. 
What's so special about King David? Look at verse 22. He was a man after my heart who will do all my will. Now we have to stop there. Because yes, David was faithful in amazing ways. But if you know anything about his story, even his story was just punctuated by spectacular failures. Point being, every leader whom whom God graciously and faithfully works deliverance for his people over the previous thousand years that Paul's just reviewed, every leader, no exceptions, inevitably failed at some point to do all God's will. So does that mean that the Lord and Paul are lying in verse 22? No. No, the divine assessment, the divine promise in verse 22, it's not a lie. Not not in the least. Why not? Listen, because where David ultimately failed, David's greater son did not. That's why it's not alive. Because there, there is a man in the line of David who perfectly and completely did all God's will in the power of the Spirit. Look at verse 23. Of this man, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Now, Jesus is not less than a man, right? Let that be clear. And yet, he is infinitely more. He's the eternal son of God. The the creator of heaven and earth, clothed in human flesh. I mean, that's why John the Baptist, the the last of the Old Testament prophets, the greatest of the prophets, a a man who, who knew his own frailty, could say, anticipating David's greater son, I am not he. That's a good line, by the way, for all of you that are tempted to save yourself and everyone around you in every situation. Wake up in the morning, confess to the Lord, King Jesus today, I am not you. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Lord's Christ. I'm not the Savior. But he's coming, John said. He's on the way. He's almost here. And and as for him, when, when he comes, I'm not worthy to perform the most menial act of service for this Lord. What what is the entire story of Israel, from Abraham to David to Jesus, tell us? Bottom line, God is the main actor, and the salvation that we need comes from him. That's the point. We, We need a perfectly obedient man who will do all God's will, who will live the life we're supposed to live and inevitably fail to live, to earn the divine approval we can never earn. That's what Jesus came to do, friends. God had promised the Savior, and he's acted in history to provide a Savior by becoming our Savior. Salvation is a gift from a faithful God. That's Paul's first point. He starts there. It's a gift from a faithful God. Always has been. But it doesn't stop there. Second, point number two, salvation is accomplished through Jesus' death and resurrection. So it's not just a gift from a faithful God and and comes in the form of a blank in which we can just write whatever sort of help we would like to have. 
in whatever sort of way we want to receive it, I would like more money. I would like a healthy body. I would like, how about a new spouse, better behaved kids? No. (laughs) No. It's a gift and it's accomplished in a specific and certain kind of way. He saves us by doing two things. Dying on a cross and rising from the grave. Just as God promised. And in both cases, notice this, in both Jesus' death and resurrection, Paul doesn't just simply say what Jesus did or what happened to him, but that it was a direct fulfillment, a loud yes to the promises God made centuries beforehand. And so in verses 27 and 29, Paul Paul recounts Christ's crucifixion. But he begins with a reference to to the Old Testament prophecies or, or the utterances read every Sunday in synagogues like the one in Pisidian Antioch where Paul was preaching. They would have read passages like this, Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed from their earliest days. Everyone listening to Paul in that synagogue would have heard those words. And they would have heard Psalm 22, verse 16 where the psalmist writes, they have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. What's Paul's point? That that the Jews in Jerusalem and, and the rulers, they should have recognized Jesus as a suffering servant. They should have known A suffering servant was coming because God had been saying he was coming. But but they were spiritually blind, my friends. They couldn't see. They couldn't see themselves as sinners who deserved death on a tree. They couldn't see that. We're the good people, they thought. Our our Roman oppressors, the the political leaders we didn't vote for, the people on the other side of the aisle, they're the problem. They're the bad guys. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) The, The Jews saw nothing on the cross but a religious pretender. A messianic farce, a threat to the religious authority, a blasphemer who claimed to be God. Jesus can't be the long-awaited savior, they said. I mean, look at him. He he can't even save himself. But their spiritual blindness didn't derail God's plan. What, What did it do? It actually fulfilled God's plan. It accomplished God's plan. It was the very means God used to fulfill promises like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. Look at verse 27. They fulfilled them by condemning him. And make no mistake, the one they condemned was completely innocent. 
Verse 28. They found in him no guilt worthy of death. And yet it was his innocence that enabled him to to bear our guilt and shame so we wouldn't have to die. That that is how God works. He, He uses the greatest evil, the greatest injustice the world has ever seen. What is that? It's not something that's happened to you. It's what happened to the Son of God. He uses that, the crucifixion of of God himself, to what? Vindicate his justice and accomplish his salvation in accordance with the perfect sovereignty of his will. Everyone around Jesus thought they were inflicting their will upon him. Maybe you're walking through something today and you feel like everyone around me is doing the same thing. They're just inflicting their will upon me. I, I I am suffering at the hands of wicked men who are calling all the shots in my life. It's what everybody around Jesus thought. But look at verse 29. In reality, they were carrying out all that God had already written of him. Jesus' opponents thought his death meant game over. His followers thought evil had won again. Maybe history is nothing more than an endless cycle of powerful people oppressing the weak for selfish gain. That that is a common view of the world today. And that's a persuasive argument. Except for the fact that the story doesn't end there. Look at verse 30. On the third day after his death, God raised him from Two, we bring you good news that what God promised to the fathers, the salvation from sin and death, he said he would bring to pass, this he has fulfilled to us their children by what? Raising Jesus. And then to prove that, Paul jumps into the deep end, so to speak, of the Old Testament. And he rattles off a list of of three promises that that point forward to Christ's resurrection. In other words, he's he's not saying, okay, Jews in Pisidian Antioch, trust me to all the promises of God, the resurrection says yes. If we just get enough music going and repeat it enough times and do it say it on special Sundays and kind of raise our voice with a microphone, maybe we'll believe it one day. No. He takes them back to God's word. And he shows them how God's being faithful. So first, he quotes Psalm 2, verse 7. Look at verse 33. Psalm 2, 7. You are my son. Today, I have begotten you. When it's original context, the, the son in Psalm 2 is all of God's chosen people. It's all of Israel. And, and in another sense, it's the Davidic king. The the, the rulers in the line of David, whom God appointed to govern his people. But listen, ultimately, the son in Psalm 2 points forward to someone far greater than David. It points forward to Jesus. And as Paul says in Romans 1.4, Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. How did Jesus' resurrection declare him to be the son? 
Well, because the one who created the stars, who'd reigned supreme from eternity past, who, who upheld the universe by the word of his power, even as he was dying on a cross, that Jesus was vindicated in the eyes of the world and revealed before the host of heaven as our all-sufficient Savior on the day he rose from the grave. Which means that first Easter wasn't just, well, here's an important event in the religious calendar. (laughs) No. The first Easter morning was a royal coronation. We don't get that the way our friends across the pond would get that. <laughs> we don't like kings over here, right? But, but the first Easter, it was a coronation. It was the inauguration of Christ's redemptive rule. That the crowning display of the indestructible power of his life. In other words, today I have begotten you doesn't mean Jesus became God's son on the day he rose from the grave. That's a heresy. He's always been the eternally begotten son of God. It means what? That he was crowned and recognized as the Davidic king, our savior, through the triumph of his resurrection. And as the Davidic king, what does Jesus accomplish? Look at verse 34. Tells us, I will give you, Paul paraphrasing Isaiah 55, 3, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Friend, the you in that verse is plural. It's a y'all. <laughs> All right? I will give y'all the holy and sure blessings of David. And that means that those blessings are not limited to whoever is the Davidic king. They are given through him to all of his people. All of God's people. Isaiah 55, 3, not paraphrased, actually says this, I will make with you an everlasting covenant. God's speaking to, to the people of Israel. I will make with you and to y'all an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. What, what did God promise King David? What, what did he promise him? Think about this. That he would not remove, this is incredible, his steadfast love from David. And his offspring. I mean, is there a better promise in the world that God will not remove his steadfast love? So, what sort of love is he ultimately talking about? That seems important to know. Is it just, I will not remove my positive vibes? From you, <laughs> I will not remove my general disposition to tolerate. I will not remove my emotional stirrings that, that hit the radar periodically when you do something pleasing to me. No. The sort of love God is promising to not remove from David, in light of Psalm 2-7, it's God the Father's love for Jesus, David's greater son. Think about this, but put your careful thinking hat on. In Isaiah 55, 3, God is promising 
nothing less than to bring his people into the very experience of steadfast fatherly love that Jesus has always enjoyed. Stunning. (laughs) And bringing us into that eternal experience requires something. This is Paul's point. Jesus must continue to live, right? Because then and only then can all who are found in him and all who are united to him and all who are one with him continue to receive and enjoy the very same steadfast love that Jesus receives and enjoys. Your life, Christian, in other words, your life, your your continued acceptance and welcome and enjoyment of the Father's love is wholly bound to Jesus. And Paul knows as much, which is why he also says in verse 35, quoting another promise in Psalm 1610, look there, you, Father, will not let your Holy One see corruption. Meaning what? You won't leave the son of your delight in the grave. That the Father's active, personal love for Jesus is eternal because Jesus' life is eternal. Jesus' life is indestructible. As Peter declares in Acts 2, 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was what? Two words, not possible for him to be held by it. So put all those promises together. Psalm 2 says Jesus is David's son to whom the father promised eternal dominion. Isaiah 55 says we will receive as God's people nothing less than the very blessings Jesus himself enjoys. And Jesus is able and faithful to share the fullness of the father's love with us as his people because what? He's not dead. He's alive. That's Psalm 1610. In other words, because Psalm 2-7 and 16-10 are true of Christ, Isaiah 55-3 is true of us. That's the logic. All three promises, they anticipate the resurrection. They require the resurrection. They, They demand, guarantee, and are fulfilled by the resurrection. Because when, when David died, King David died, what, what happened to his body? What remained in the earth, right? Returned to dust, just like yours will. Lest the Lord returns first. But not so when Jesus died. Look at verse 37. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Jesus' body didn't languish in the grave. Returned to dust. Waiting like David. For the resurrection on the final day? Why not? Because Jesus was not done serving the purposes of God in his generation. David was done. He served the purposes of God in his generation. Jesus was not done serving the purposes of God in his generation. Why not? Because he was only getting started. Only getting started, drawing lost men and women to himself, opening blind eyes to see his all-satisfying beauty. He was only getting started, working all things together according to the, the perfect counsel of his will. It's the very work our crucified and risen Savior is still doing today, friends. He is still on the move in this generation, working out all of God's saving purposes 
And his resurrection has implications for our generation because it's, it's more than just a historical fact. Well, that happened. Yes, it did. It's not less than a historical fact, but it's more because it proclaims something today in this generation. It shouts something. It declares something. It announces something. Point number three, finally, salvation consists of freedom from the guilt and power of sin. That's what the resurrection says. Look at verse 38. Verse 38. Paul's logic is critical here, friends. This isn't emotionalism. This isn't, let's just all dress up and play some loud drums and sing some exciting songs and feel jazzed. This is biblical truth logic you can build your life on. Verse 38, let it be known to you, therefore. What's Paul doing? He's saying the resurrection of Christ isn't just a historical event. It says something today. It makes something known today. It announces something that that is unmistakably clear, forever certain, unchangeably sure. What is that? That through this man, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, friend. Forgiveness of sins has always been the obstacle, okay? Always been the obstacle to knowing and experiencing the joy of relationship with God. Always been the obstacle. It's a need we all have. It's a need Israel had. It's our greatest need. And it's a gift the resurrection secures. So think of it this way. Indulge me in a thought experiment, okay? What if Jesus had died on the cross, but then remained in the tomb? What if? What would we not know? We wouldn't know whether his sacrifice was sufficient. We, we, we would know that the blood of bulls and calves and goats can, can never take away sin. And that perhaps, perhaps... Jesus' sacrifice was better. But is it enough? Might the justice of God require something more? We wouldn't know that. Hebrews 10, 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he arose, he ascended, and then what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. His his resurrection, his ascension, his heavenly reign right now, it confirms that the death he died was more than enough. Enough to atone for your guilt. Enough to cover your shame. 
enough to make you right with God. His resurrection ensures the fulfillment of promises like Jeremiah 31, 34. They shall all know me, speaking of the chosen people of God, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The resurrection proclaims forgiveness of sins. And so friend, if I might have a word with you on this, There is nothing noble in beating yourself up when you sin. Languishing in self-condemnation. As if despising yourself in sufficient measure could make up for your iniquity. Or call forward God's compassion. Nor is there anything noble in those who say, have you heard this? I believe God forgives me, but I just can't forgive myself. You ever heard that? Said that? Friend, if you said that, if you thought that, felt that, who are you to take the place of God? Who are you to privilege your judgment of yourself? over the judgment of the judge of all the earth. Judgment belongs to the Lord, friends. It doesn't belong to you or to me. Don't don't enthrone yourself above him. To to say, I can't forgive myself, is, is to walk in pride clothed in a veneer of humility. The resurrection proclaims forgiveness of sins through Christ and Christ alone. Not how long you make yourself languish in self-condemnation. Christ alone. Application? Do not reject as insufficient. The sacrifice, the resurrection says, is wholly sufficient. But that's not all. Yes, forgiveness of sins. Precious gift, but Paul continues in verse 39. And by him, by Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Part of the reason I chose this chapter on this Sunday is we've been studying what book together? Deuteronomy, right? We spent a lot of time in the law of Moses. So what does the law do? We're about, I don't know, through nine of the Ten Commandments at this point, I think. What what does the law do? Well, the law brings an awareness of sin, right? The the conviction of sin. It, It shows us what it really means to love God and love neighbor and how far we all fall short. The law can't remove the sin that separates us from God, nor can it Change your heart. Give you power to obey. I mean, simple illustration. Have you ever been in a situation where you knew what you were supposed to do or should do? Maybe you even had the blessing of someone who loves you and cares for you a lot that you didn't really want to hear from, but they love you and so they said something anyway, telling you what you were supposed to do or should do. But even as you knew that, and even as you heard that, you felt like, 
have no power to do that. I have no desire to do that. I mentally assent to the fact that that would be the right thing to do. And what you're saying is the right thing to do. But, but I'm not going to do that. No freedom. No power. Side note, we think of freedom as no one telling us what to do. You know what true freedom is? It's the power to do what God created and redeemed you to do. That's true freedom. The law can't give you that, friend. The the law marks out the path of God's commands, but it can't give you any power to run in the path of those commands. But what the law could never do, Jesus is faithful to do. Why? Because he doesn't just offer forgiveness, freedom from the guilt of sin through his all-sufficient death. He also offers deliverance or freedom from the power of sin by doing what? By filling us with his spirit, giving us a heart that, that wants to run in the path of God's commands. And through the spirit, he exercises, God himself exercises in our life as believers, the same power that raised Jesus from the grave. Do you realize you did not wake up this morning, Christian, greeted merely with, here's the commands of God, get busy doing them? If you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, you woke up this morning with the power that raised Jesus from the grave living in you. You, you, The question is not, will I be able to obey God's commands? You already have the power to obey God's commands. The question is, will you look to the spirit and trust his resurrection power? Or will you look to yourself and say, I can't do it. And if you come to me and tell me as a pastor, when you're asking for prayer, pastor, please pray for me because I can't do it. I'm going to say, praise be to God. It's about time you realize that. Because I can't do it either but the spirit can. And so if you feel your need for for deliverance from the power of sin, if, if there is something you know is wrong, but you just keep doing it again and again, the resurrection says something to you, friend. It, it, it grabs your shirt collar. It's, it's speaking to you. It's in your face. It gets in your face. What's it say? Freedom that you long for is available. Not in the distant future when you you get your life together, but right here, right now, because it's found in Jesus. Parents, please remember what I just said. Please. When your children are struggling to obey, what they ultimately need is not a more strident, Firmer lecture in what not to do. As if taking their face and rubbing it in the law at some point will just make you change. (laughs) You've never changed like that. Why would you try to make your kids? What they need, mom and dad, for you to point them to Jesus. 
point them to the cross, point them to the empty tomb to, to remind your little ones again and again that freedom from the enslaving power of sin comes from Christ and Christ alone. That's the good news that Jesus is eager and able to set us free. But there's only one requirement. And Paul identifies it in verse 39. Look there. You have to believe. You have to believe. Everyone who believes. Believes what? <laughs> believes what the resurrection confirms and declares. That through his life and death, Jesus has done all that is necessary to save you from the guilt and power of sin. Believe that. Believe that. Faith in Jesus. Hear this. Faith in Jesus is how we experience the fullness of his resurrection power in our lives. That's how it goes down. Faith in Jesus means you stop trying to make yourself acceptable to God, trying to earn his love, trying to merit his approval, trying to prove you're good enough or better than your spouse or be the better person. And instead, you start trusting Jesus to justify you. Faith in Jesus means you stop trying to do better or be better and start trusting Jesus, relying on the power of the Spirit to sanctify you. You stop trying to save yourself. You look to Jesus. That's what genuine saving faith does. Not once, oh yeah, I took care of that when I was a kid. No, day after day after day after day. You know what your greatest need when you wake up tomorrow morning will be forever? Today, will I believe Jesus or not? That's your greatest need. Every day you wake up. Mind you, that doesn't make the measure of your faith, the measure of your salvation. What do I mean? Well, I mean that belief doesn't forgive anyone. Put in faith, get out forgiveness. No, belief doesn't free anyone. Look at verse 39. How are we forgiven and freed? We're not forgiven and freed By the measure of our faith, we're forgiven and freed by him, Paul says. Faith unites us to Christ such that his story becomes our story. This is Paul's whole point in Romans 6, verse 5. Listen, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Because we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Friends, God's salvation consists of deliverance from the guilt and power of sin. And that promise is fulfilled through Jesus' resurrection. Because the Savior took our sin into the grave and he walked out victorious. Justice vindicated. Salvation accomplished. 
death defeated, life secured, because Jesus prevailed. And in so doing, the resurrection leaves you with a warning. Look at verse 40. A gracious and loving beware. Beware, friend. Because the question is not, does God keep his promises? Right? To all the saving promises of God, the resurrection says, yes. The question is whether you will utter amen to God for his glory. Believing in him, trusting Jesus, obeying Jesus, or, or stubbornly refuse to believe because you think you don't really need him or, or that you'll have plenty of time in the future to, to work things out with God, even if there is a God. Please know, if you choose that option, if you reject or dismiss or ignore the resurrection, you're fulfilling yet another divine promise. Except this time it's a promise of judgment. Verse 40, beware, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. And then Paul paraphrases Habakkuk 1.5, look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I'm doing a work in your days, a work you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Habakkuk brought a word to Israel. It was a word of judgment. The Babylonians are coming. They're going to take you into exile. And Israel rejected the word of the Lord. They said, that's not going to happen. Nothing bad is going to happen to us. And they suffered the consequences. And many, many people make the same mistake today, my friends. Exact same mistake. If you, hear me, if you scoff at the gospel, if you politely listen to a sermon like this. But do not take it to heart. And do not respond with faith in Jesus. You will perish in your sin. Because trusting Jesus isn't a lifestyle option. It's a matter of life and death, my friend. Know this. Today, praise be to God, today you have heard the gospel. You've heard the gospel. Forgiveness of sins has been proclaimed to you. Freedom from the power of sin has been made known to you. Both are found in Jesus and Jesus alone. And so I urge you to respond in the way the people in Pisidian Antioch did. Verse 42, they what? They begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Well, you already heard them. You got anything new, Paul? Like, we, we got that, okay? We, Get it, I get it, crucified, risen. How about some tips for financial management? Why was their response the right response? Because we never outgrow our need for the gospel. We, we need Christ crucified and risen in all its implications to be presented before our eyes again and again and again. That's what it means, verse 43, to continue in the grace of God. How do we know, my friends? Our God is faithful to save. How do we know he will do what he has said he will do? Verse 34, because he raised Jesus from the dead, no more to return to corruption. To all the promises of God, the resurrection says, 
yes. Yes, God is able. Yes, God is faithful. Yes, his sacrifice is sufficient. Yes, his power is greater. Yes, his life can be your life. Yes, sin and death will not have the final word. And yes, a day is coming when the resurrection body Jesus now enjoys will be the resurrection body all of his people enjoy. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this morning we want to utter our amen to your glory. Thank you that the salvation we need is a gift from you, Lord, accomplished through your death and resurrection, and that it brings us forgiveness of sin and freedom from the power of sin. Lord, give us renewed faith For those that wonder this morning, I'm not sure I actually know this God very well at all. Tell me more, Pastor. Would you give them a gift of new faith? We want to be a people who hear all your promises and then look at the empty tomb and say every morning, Father, thank you for saying yes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.